All right, welcome, Father Kendall. Thank We're you. Yours. Well, good evening. Thanks to everyone for being here. Um, we're in the Fruits of the Spirit, Stories of Hope, and we're looking tonight at the second fruit of the Spirit. We're in Galatians 5, the 22nd verse, and the second fruit that's mentioned after love, which we tried to say something about last week, is joy. So what I want to do, as is my want, is I want to tell you what I want to do, and then I want to do it, and then I'm going to pray and try to do it. So what I want to do is I want to say a word again of introduction about Galatians, but I want to say a different introductory thing today, just to anchor us back in the book again. And then secondly, uh, for the first time, I want to say something about fruit, because we need to reflect on the fruit of the Spirit, which is not the same as the gifts of the Spirit, which are mentioned in the New Testament, nor is it the same as the works of the flesh. So just a, a, a word about fruit. And then third, we want to try to unpack the actual fruit of joy. What does it mean? And how are we to think about it? And how are we to open ourselves so that the Spirit can give it to us? All right? So that's what I'm hoping to do. All right, Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, thanks that we can come at all times and in all places uh, and make our requests known to you. And thank you for this wonderful section of Paul's letter to the Galatians and for this wonderful idea of these nine fruits of the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to have your Holy Spirit tonight as our teacher. We do not have it within ourselves to help ourselves. We need you to give us the focus and the openness and the teachableness and the ability to listen and to see and to hear that only you can provide. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open your word to us and us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, back to Galatians. And this time I want to say something about the section where this falls. If you remember last time, we spoke in some detail about the fact that Paul has a relationship with his church that isn't like any of the other relationships he has because they've deserted the gospel. So he's very strong, even antagonistic toward them because they are buttoning the coat and missing the bottom button. And the problem is if you button the coat and you miss the bottom button before you start or the shirt, then you are off kilter from the get-go. And they are off kilter from Christ and they're off kilter from Paul and they're off kilter from the cross and he wants them to get back on task and back on tack. So he has to re-remind them of the gospel and he has to get them away from the false gospel that they've embraced. What I want to say for a minute tonight is I want to make sure to anchor chapter 5 verse 22 which is where we are in the context of chapter 5 as a whole. And one of the most beautiful verses in the whole New Testament is Galatians 5 verse 1, and I want to remind you of it because this whole section that we're in comes under the heading of Christian freedom. And chapter 5 verse 1 in the RSV reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. And Paul's burden in this letter and for this church 
is that they would get out from the yoke of the false gospel and learn afresh the lesson of Christian freedom. And the Christian freedom in Galatians is very, very beautiful. And it's important that we understand it fully. It has three dimensions. You and I are in a culture where freedom only means one thing. And it's very secular. It's very focused on the individual knowing, willing self as the arbiter of all reality. And what freedom means in almost all of Western culture these days is getting rid of restrictions so that I can be who I am. Thank you very much. And whatever restricts me, whatever is in my way as the person who defines my reality, the all subsuming and consuming self. So freedom in the secular sense in which most of our culture thinks of it is something that's in your way. It's a restriction that you need to get rid of in order to have freedom. And in the New Testament, that is one dimension of freedom. It's freedom from, and of course, in the New Testament, it's freedom from sin. And that's one of the things that Paul talks about in great detail in chapter five, before he gets to our section. So the first thing I want you to think about when you think about Christian freedom is that you're freed from your former self. You're freed from the life that you were living. You're freed from the old Adam. You're freed from the works of the flesh and life as you knew it will never be the same. Second, it's not just for Paul that you're freed from something. That's where the Christian understanding of freedom and our modern understanding of freedom diverge. In the New Testament, freedom is always for, and you may know that Paul defines himself as a bond servant or a bond slave even, a slave for Christ. You are freed from sin and you are freed for righteousness and for Christ. You now belong to him. He is the one who is in charge of your life, body, soul, and spirit. He is the Lord of the universe, but he's also the Lord of you. And when you become a Christian, you give over your will to the Lord of the universe as he becomes the Lord of your life and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. So it's no good thinking about it just in negative terms from sin, from the works of the flesh, from the world, the flesh, and the devil, all that sort of thing. You've got to think of it in positive terms as for righteousness, as for the spirit, as for discipleship, as for being a true servant of Christ, a true slave of Christ in every sense that that means. Now, you may think that's it. That's pretty rich, those two dimensions. But there's a third dimension, and I don't want you to miss it because it's very important that we keep it in the background of our study that we're doing right now. And that is, it's not just freedom from, and that's vital. It's not just freedom for, and that's also vital. It's also freedom with. That is to say, for Paul, when he says in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us, what I want you to notice is that little pronoun us. It's a plural for Paul. Christian freedom is always communal. And this is a big collision point between American culture and the culture of the gospel. We've been over this before. Africans have a huge advantage. For Benjamin Kwashi, they live in a world where I am because we are. And that's just as un-American as you can get, right? It's, we have the Declaration of Independence. We're all about American individualism and Horatio Alger and I brought myself up by my own bootstraps. But it's no good Christian freedom thinking in terms of 
from and for if you don't also think of with. So my Christian freedom actually enables your Christian freedom to be freer, and I need your Christian freedom, and you need mine. And one of the most powerful things this side of glory is when a whole church, by the power of the Spirit, becomes free from sin and for Christ together. So those are the three dimensions of Christian freedom. You with me? All right, so first of all, think of what we're talking about under the heading of being free for Christ. And what Paul's really talking about is the second kind of freedom I mentioned, which is freedom for Christ, freedom in the Spirit, and he's trying to spell that out. But earlier in the chapter, verse 13, those of you taking notes, he says, for you were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, right? So don't go back and be stuck in the former sins, but through love, be servants one to another. And it's in the context of that idea of freedom that he's unpacking the spirit. And he says, part of the way that you learn to be truly free for Christ, truly a slave for Christ, is to abide in Christ and, and enable the Holy Spirit to give you the fruits of the spirit. All right. So when you think about the fruits of the spirit, think about freedom for, think about the Holy Spirit enabling you to be the effective slave and servant of Christ that he longs for you to be. And we talked last week, and I want to keep emphasizing it. Remember, it's not something that you do based on your own strength or that I do. None of us is going to be free for Christ if we try harder. That's a fool's exercise. The Holy Spirit is the absolute center point of Paul's doctrine of Christian freedom. Last week, we learned that Christian freedom was something that freed us for and into love. Tonight, we talk about freedom into joy. You all with me? All right, so when we talk about joy, it's a very, very important word. And it's the second of the fruits of the Spirit. And I thought, I thought about doing my LeBron James silly list, but I'm not going to do it tonight. But I hope that you're working to memorize verse 22 so you have all nine uh, fruits of the Spirit kind of in your mind and, and kind of worrying around. It's a great list to say when you're stuck at the bank or you're stuck in traffic. It's a wonderful thing to meditate on. They're, they're great things. And more than one person has pointed out that if you take these nine fruits of the Spirit kind of as a whole, they're a great summary of the character of our Lord, and it all goes back to him, doesn't it, right? Say what you want about Jesus. He was incredibly loving, but he was also incredibly joyful, and that's where we are tonight. So let's think about joy, and as we do, let's define it first, and then let's think about the Old Testament background of it for a second, second. So if you look it up in the dictionary, what you usually get and what most people in our time think of when they think of joy is an emotion. So here's Miriam Webster, one of their entries. The emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, right? That's Miriam Webster on joy, okay? Now, the, the thing about that that's good is joy definitely, from a Christian perspective, involves the emotions. If you think about joy and you think about events, you tend to think about things like, for example, the birth of a child, right? Most people who are married and have had children, it's one of their fondest memories, right? And it, it gives you an incredibly warm, when you see a child 
you, you think lots of things, you feel lots of things, but one of the things you feel is, wow, this is a life. And that is human joy. It is the emotion evoked by something that's happened that is good. But in the Christian sense, and in the New Testament sense, it's not just emotion. So Theopedia says this, and I think this is helpful. Joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. And that is an important qualifier for a deeper and richer Christian sense of joy. It involves emotion, but it, it is centered really in the decision of the will and the feasting of the mind on the reality of the goodness of who God is, which can be enjoyed no matter what the circumstances. So here's Rick Warren. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. That's a very refreshing and I think full definition of joy. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all, notice, not most, not some, not a few. If you had a day like I did, you might, you might be uh, thinking it's just a few, Lord, where are you? No, it's all of the details of my life. The quiet confidence that everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. That is the, 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 the New Testament sense of joy. It involves feelings, but at, the, but at its heart, it's a decision of the will and the state of mind. And its richest sense is of an inner delight in the reality of God himself. One of the richest traditions that you and I as Christians inherit is the church's ability to work with scripture as a whole over 20 centuries. And one of the things that the church has learned is that the Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus. And if you look at the history of the church, it's always seen the Psalms as one of the keys to really understanding who Jesus is. And whenever it says in the Psalms, the man in Hebrew, the way that the church has always understood that primarily, there are lots of ways to understand it in addition to this, is to, to have it reference Christ. And if you think of Psalm 1, which is where it all begins, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in this, this, this. It says, and his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And one of the most profound ways to think about Jesus is to think about Jesus as a person of joy. When you think of Mark 1, and it says, early in the morning, a long while before day, Jesus went off by himself to a lonely place to pray. The, the joy of the Lord is his strength with his Father, and that joy abides with him all throughout the day. And one of the most beautiful ways that that goes in Jesus's life is at the end. And we have this incredible throwaway line in Hebrews 12 in reference to Holy Week and Good Friday. And the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have, have all these incredible witnesses, this great host of witnesses, let us cast aside every sin and weight that clings so closely, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And this is the key line for our purposes. Listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. 
So part of our understanding of Jesus is that joy that he abided with his father with in the morning, that joy that was in his heart all during the day, that joy which is a feature of so many of the stories that he tells, which we'll get to maybe in a moment, that joy is actually what enables him to get through the horrors of Holy Week. He left the father's joy. He has the father's joy in his heart. And the reason he can say, stay so implacably calm in the midst of all the reasons he's being given by his circumstances, by Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod and everybody around him, including the crowd, to lose it is because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy is his contentment, as Rick Warren says, that God is in control of all the details of his life and that he's going back to the joy of the right hand of the Father that he left to come here in the first place. You all with me? So that's what joy actually means in terms of one of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, I told you I wanted to say something about uh, fruit, and then I want to come back to joy. The thing about the fruit that in, in this passage and in this section is it's more than one person has pointed out it's singular, and it's in contrast to the works of the flesh, which Paul goes into great detail about in another section before our section. But it's also in contrast to the gifts of the Spirit. They're both plural. And David Guzik, in his commentary, has a very helpful reflection on the nature of fruit. See what you make of this. He says this. He says, fruit has several important characteristics, right? So the fruit of the Spirit is a singular word. And what he's asking us to do when we think about the fruit of the Spirit being joy is to think about what we actually mean when we use that word fruit. Here's what he says. Fruit isn't achieved by working, but is birthed by abiding. There's a whole long sermon in that for sure. Here's another thing he says. Fruit is fragile. I think that's a great observation. Fruit reproduces itself, right? Have you noticed? Uh, one of my favorite sayings is joy shared is doubled. Sorrow shared is halved. If you have ever been in somebody else's life, in a way where you really care about them and they have a joyful experience, it's almost impossible for you not in some way to be impacted by their joy. It just spreads. That's the way fruit works. Fruit is attractive, says Guzik. It is. Our fruit is not for ourselves so much as for others. And that's why that freedom with that I mentioned before is so important. And also he says, and I think this is important too, is fruit nourishes. So, it isn't achieved by working, it's achieved by abiding, it's fragile, it reproduces itself, it's attractive, and it nourishes. Wow. So when you think about the fruit of the Spirit, and you think about being invited into the fruit of the Spirit, that word abide is, I think, the key idea in terms of the, the heart of what it means to learn to be joyful is to allow the Holy Spirit to enable us to abide in God's presence and to learn more and more the, uh, the fruit of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. It's all about the centeredness on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and learning, as Rick Warren says, that they're in control of every detail of our lives. Now, you knew it was coming, um, the, the C.S. Lewis reference. His weight of glory is all about joy, and joy was one of his favorite themes. And I've told you this quote before, but I want to make sure to quote it to you tonight. 
what Lewis says again and again is the problem with discipleship for us is we keep settling for less and God won't let us. He wants us to settle for more. Here's what he says in, the, in one of his most famous sermons, The Weight of Glory, thinking about joy. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when, listen, infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think it's a beautiful statement. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And there is, I think, an invitation in the second fruit of the Spirit to pray for an appetite for joy. Now, joy is one of the chief characteristics of our Lord, and it's one of the chief characteristics of the early church. And one of the things you have to start with, I think, when you honestly face into the fruit of the Spirit being joy, is the degree to which we're not joyful and the degree to which God calls us to be joyful, and therefore that we need the Holy Spirit to give us an appetite for joy. Lord, teach me to be more joyful. Teach me how to abide in your presence and enjoy you forever. And I want to conclude by reminding you of one of the most important stories in our faith where joy plays a central part. Joy is one of Luke's favorite words, and you already know this, but I just want to remind you in conclusion, this idea of joy, this idea of abiding in God's incredibly blessed, wonderful, everything is in control by his hand presence is Christmas. And there are three places, three places in the Christmas story that you already know where joy shows up. The first is Zechariah, when he goes, as is his calling, into the temple and he meets the angel, as you remember. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and you will rejoice at his birth. That's what the angel says to Zechariah. So keep that image in mind. Zechariah is told twice in that one verse, chapter 1, verse 14. You will have joy and you will rejoice. The second place is when Elizabeth collides with Mary in that wonderful meeting between the two of them when Mary has just had Gabriel come to her and now she's got a baby and Elizabeth's pregnant and is along a good ways. And Elizabeth says to Mary, chapter 1, verse 44, for behold, the voice of your greeting in my ears meant that the babe in my womb leapt for joy. So that you have John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaping for joy at the news that Mary is going to bear the Savior. You've got two women, you've got two births, you've got the incredible joy of having a baby, but, but you have the deeper reality that this baby is in fact God himself, the author of the story, entering the story. As J.B. Phillips wonderfully says, you and I live on the visited planet. And the last place, which is the most famous place, which is the source 
of the most famous or one of the most famous Christmas hymns, Joy to the World, is what the angels say that you all know already, but I want to remind you. When this heavenly host shows up to these shepherds with this incredible news, and the angel said to them, Behold, I bring you tidings of dot, dot, dot. You remember. Great joy, which shall be to all the people. Great joy. So when you think about joy, part of the challenge of really beginning to grasp how rich and how deep it is, is to think about the fact that those people actually participated in God coming into history and were breathtakingly told that it was not predicted to happen. It was really happening in their midst. And, and John and Zechariah and, and Mary and Elizabeth and the angels, they are a, a chorus of lots of things in the Christmas story. But for Luke, they are above all a chorus of joy, which is the abiding presence of the God who is better than we can scarcely imagine. Or to quote St. Paul in Ephesians, able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. Now, I want to um, conclude tonight. I, I debated about stories for joy. I have lots from my own life, and there are lots of stories. One of my favorite things on the internet, and, and I commend this to you, is um, people who haven't been able to see, being able to see, people who can't see colors, seeing colors for the first time. But one of my personal favorites is people who haven't been able to hear, who are able to hear for the first time. And it's this side of glory I think one of the deepest images for joy at a human kind of physical level. You've, you've never been able to hear or you've barely been able to hear and all of a sudden you get a cochlear implant and you get some help and you can hear. And we brought one video tonight just to show you one woman who got the ability to hear and then she heard her husband say, I love you for the first time and you get to see a reaction.
sound very loud to yourself, don't you? Okay? Okay, I'm going to turn it down. You said you weren't going to cry. You're funny. <laughs> Can you hear me what I said? She, she heard your voice because she turned them on for you. Oh, she did. Mike was screaming. So if you remember, um, I told you when we talked about doing this surgery that it may sound like Donald Duck at first. Um, by the time you get home and listen for a few hours, it's not going to sound as bad. Um, the fact that you can hear my voice and your mom's voice is awesome. That's a big improvement from where you started at with this year. <laughs> That noise can it go away? You'll notice it go away. Um, it's, it's more noticeable right now because you're hearing by an electronic way of hearing. That's so, right. It's, so it's sort of like this machine quality to the sound. It takes a little bit for your brain to adjust to the way this sounds. Once it does adjust, it will not sound like this. Today is the worst day. Every day it should get a little bit better. Is the noise going to go away? It should go away, yes. It's pretty noisy on the first day. Okay. Um, let's see if you can hear your husband. Keep looking at me. See if you can say something to him. I love you, Allison. I love Amen. Amen. Wow. That's pretty darn powerful. Well, if anybody would like to uh, show your face and unmute yourself um, and either ask a question or um, contribute or say anything, um, please do so. That was a pretty powerful uh, expression of joy, I thought. Some smiling and nodding, but no talking. Father Kendall, you've got them speechless. Well, she's, she, that's a pretty remarkable video. It gets me every time, so. I was doing pretty good until that right there, right when he says, I love you, and she replies that, uh, yeah. That was pretty powerful. Any questions or observations or thoughts? Powerful piece. Thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Leslie. Sorry, Cecil. I just wanted to say thank you for um, bringing up Christmas in the middle of June, because that to me is personifies joy. I mean, it's joy that when you started talking about joy and I was 
thinking of the things that bring us joy, it's like the joy Christmas. And, um, you know, a lot of people do think about the fruit of the spirits, but I always go to, to Christmas. So that was sweet. Thank you. And, and yeah, we were all crying, Kendall. So. <laughs> Me too. Good job. Cecil, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, it was uh, very powerful to me that uh, when he said we are half-hearted creatures and then fruit burst by abiding. And I don't know, I think when you think about that, that's that's just super powerful. That It makes you feel that uh, we haven't achieved what we could achieve. We haven't been as spiritual and dedicated to God, maybe as we should have been. We haven't been a lot of things. We could be more if we were full creatures. Anyone have a comment about that? I used to have a poster on the wall that said, uh, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. And one of my favorite images of Jesus is, Jesus is the life that God wants human beings to live fully alive. He, he is the essence of a human being fully alive in every sense of what that is. And uh, you, you and I, Cecil, are, are apologies for human beings. But, uh, but he, is, he is a joy-filled, fully alive person. And it, 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 is a, it is a very wonderful thing to think about. It's beautiful, it really is. Hmm. I uh, have a question and a comment. Hey, Andrew. The uh, question is, I wanna brag on my students. Um, they came up with this phrase when they were teaching the book of James and they said, gratitude is the right attitude. And it made me think this idea of joy, is it, Instead of it being an emotion, could you think of it more like an attitude? Um, it's would that be missing it? No, I think it involves an attitude, but it's it, it it's a state of mind as well as a decision of the will. So mm. it's it's a very it's a very holistic concept, and sometimes you can um, not feel the emotion of joy initially, but you can decide to be in God's presence, and then the Holy Spirit can give you. The feeling that comes later. So, I mean, I think I think the attitude of enjoyment is definitely part of it, but where it falls in the sequence of time can vary depending on the disciple and the circumstances. And and also one one has to say one's emotional makeup. I mean, we all know, you know some some of us go way up, you know, and way down. Some of us go a little bit like some of us are real steady and my wife is really very steady. I'm all over the place. So, so there's that dimension to it. It's God somehow graciously incorporates who, who we are. So it, it involves your attitude, but, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a state of mind, decision of will, and the attitude. That's so it's very rich. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me was that image of C.S. Lewis and it just made me think of the fact that I think in order to have joy, you have to be willing to die to bitterness and resentment and 
those other feelings. And it's just so funny because theologically, I recognize that it is the mud pie, those things. And yet sometimes it's so easy to want to hold on to those things. And the freedom of giving those things up, I think, is, was really powerful, but it's also very difficult. <laughs> it is very difficult. It is very difficult. And a, a proper teaching of Galatians 5 has to go into that aspect of it in detail. And one of the things that you'll find when Paul says, crucify the flesh with its desires, and more than one commentator has noted that Paul's basically saying you, you have to learn to be ruthless. And you may know that word, that English word ruthless actually comes from the book and the character of Ruth. So to, to be ruthless oh. is, to be, is to be utterly unlike the character of Ruth in every possible way, i.e. fiercely, strongly <laughs> focused and acting in strength and uh, forceful. So it, it, it is a, we, you, there is a sense in which you have to you have to look say for example let's just pick unforgiveness to pick one but i mean there's there's an aspect of it where you have to say this can't stand and that's all in galatians 5 so it's not just the, the works of the flesh have to be dealt with ruthlessly as and mm. as well as we learn to abide in the spirit and learn to walk in the spirit and therefore are enabled to begin to live into the fruits of the spirit. It's a it's a both and, and that's where that's the freedom from part of the beginning of Galatians. But we're only talking about the freedom for right now. Mm. But they tie together because you can't be joyful in a sustained way if you're full of unforgiveness. Wow, Mrs. Harmon, I see your hand is up. Yeah, I just wanted to. I mean, it, it kind of all goes together with what Andrew said, just the whole concept of remembering where you've come from, satisfied with where you are to a certain degree. I don't, that satisfied doesn't make it because as you said, you know, we're not, we are like in a mud pit, but yet the joy also comes from the, the best is yet to come. And so there's a sense that that brings that the joy of the best is yet to come. We wish, I wish it to happen more, especially during, you know, this pandemic where I'm thinking, okay, same old, same old, but I have to look forward or try to look forward and say the best is yet to come and let that seep back, that joy seep back and help me with this day. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. That's very good. It does have a dimension of time, and I, th I think true Christian joy has a, f a past, a present, and a future about it. And that's why it's interesting that Hebrews says, for the sake of the joy that was set before him. So, I mean, Jesus is abiding in the joy of the Father, stuck before Pilate, but, but at the same time, he's looking forward to returning to the fullness of joy at the Father's right hand. So he is, he is joy in the present, but he also is focused on the joy of the future. And you, and you gotta have all those dimensions working to get the fullness of the biblical notion of joy. It's very rich. It's in the liturgy, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's really an invitation to enjoy the three time dimensions of true Christian joy. 
Anyone else? Yeah, going once. I just keep coming back to, to that uh, uh, scripture and uh, uh, Paul's message to the Thessalonians of being. You might speak up, Jerry. It's hard to hear you. Keep coming back to Thessalonians and, and Paul's message to be joyful always, and that's God's plan for us. Yeah. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a, it's a great thing. Always again. Yeah. 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 I, I could have shared um, an example of joy, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to get through it because I'd be crying the whole time. But the joy of trying to have children and not being able to, and then... All you want is a child mm. and, and our adoptions of Jack and Anna. I mean, the joy is just, it's, it's hard to even express. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> just a, it's just amazing. Well, and it's, it's a strange uh, interjection of joy in the midst of pain. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. they're tremendous pain and yeah. tremendous joy. Yeah, it's hard, hard to put those together, but that's what happens. Yeah. And that, yeah. 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 Well, an adoption is one of the primary New Testament metaphors for us as the children of God. Right. We are adopted by God's grace. So mm -hmm. those three stories in Luke 15 that you all know so well, you know, the lost uh, coin and the um, lost sheep and the lost son. If you go back and look at them, they're all there. When, whenever the thing is found, it's, it, it always, it all comes back to joy. And they, and they involve tremendous struggle and pain. I mean, the, the coin is lost and that's not okay. The sheep is lost and that's not okay. And the son is gone from home and whether he's coming back is not known. And that's really not okay. Um, but, but they end with a reunion that involves profound joy. And that, that's, that, that's, that, those are little parables of the kingdom. And I think they come out of the heart of the joy of Jesus. That, that's one of his favorite kind of verbs is rejoice and enjoy the Lord. Three stories of joy all in one chapter, kind of a picture of the kingdom. All right. Well, one more chance. Anybody else? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Father, do you want to say something again before we close about next week? I do, I do. I will absolutely say something about next week. We uh, will have a very special uh, Time in the Word Wednesday, next Wednesday. Um, it will be a, a live Time on the Word, uh, Time in the Word, and we'll be um, on the lawn at the rectory. Um, and given everything that's been going on, next week's uh, fruit will be peace. Um, and we will have as our guest, um, Father Matthew Rivers, Matthew is uh, the, the rector of the St. John's Chapel on the east side of Charleston. He is an African-American priest, um, and he will be coming um, live and in person to be with us. And we're going to do a joint thing again. Um, we'll be feeding our, uh, it will be live stream, so if you can't come and join us, but we'll have places for those of you that want to come in a car or whatever. But if you don't, it'll still be live streamed um, for that both on our traditional sites, Facebook and YouTube, and St. John's Chapel's Facebook, because they typically do a Bible study on Wednesday nights. Right. And so we're gonna 
feed it to both of us. So we'll be doing another joint um, celebration with another church, um, an African-American congregation um, together with Matthew as our teacher. We'll also, because we'll be live and, and we're still singing with masks on Sunday morning or behind a computer, um, we'll be gathering for a little additional time of praise and worship that Tim um, and Stephen Herman together will be leading us on uh, Wednesday night. So we'll get some extended worship after the teaching. For those who would like to join us and be a part of that, we'll have some extra worship. And Tim, I saw you unmuted. Do you want to say something to that? Just super excited to, to worship in person with you all and with Stephen. So, good. So, Is it at 6.30, Craig? It will be at 6.30, just like um, it has been. We'll be at 6.30, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. It should be great. And if you don't have young children, then you probably haven't yet heard, but uh, we're going to, uh, the vestry has learned through this book we read to uh, do experiments. And so this coming Sunday, we're going to do an experiment, and we're going to also have live worship on the lawn for families with young children. Um, at nine o'clock, um, and Tim will open that with some worship, and Tapley will be working together with me and Andrew on some uh, sermon homily teaching uh, activities. Uh, Margaret Davis, I think she's looking for you to maybe come and help her, FYI, so uh, just uh, mention that to you. Um, it'll be 30 minutes, 9 to 9.30. It will be socially distanced with our circles on the front lawn. We hope that's not going to be like a football field with permanent round circles on our front yard, but uh, it looks like they'll be there for a while. But that's at night. So if you know a family with young children, we haven't seen our young children, families with young children um, on a Sunday morning in a long time. And so um, if you can, we sent them all a, a preview email about it. You'll see it tomorrow in the e-news, but if you don't have young children. Um, and Kathy Wamsley, I, I saw your husband, and we told him all about it this afternoon. So we're hoping. <laughs> Well, I haven't asked him. I was just going to ask you, did you say the children need to have on masks when they're socially distancing? No, um, that's when we're going to be outside in your social okay. little, little prison. You can... <laughs> you cannot, uh, you can, you cannot wear your mask so we can sing and worship and do stuff together. Um, yeah, I just wasn't and, sure. Um, Meg, well, I'm oh, I'm sorry. Megan will wear one, but I, I'm not sure about David. And that was kind of the question so nope if if you it, they're optional if somebody would like to wear them Hello. you can wear it if you'd like to so we're missing <laughs> our kids and we're looking forward to them being here really looking happy forward. to see you guys so, happy to have Thank them. You. so like i say 30 minutes and we will be, be um, timely on that so the rest of us can get into the service at 10 so you could do both if you wanted to it's a Pro probably so i've enjoyed it been good for me because normally I'm in kid zone and not in the sermon. So I, I've appreciated all these these uh, live sermons well, great. that I can watch at home. So it's good. We'll still be streaming the Santa o'clock service. This one will not be streamed. This, uh, this uh, family worship will not be streamed. Right. Um, it'll be live and that's that's it. We our, our mistakes will not be kept for posterity on this one. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's nothing else, it's great to see you all. Um, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good Thank night, you. everybody.